Nigel Verdon is a three-time fintech founder. In 1996, he founded Evolution, now part of BAE Systems. In 2007, he started Currency Cloud. And in 2016, he began building his latest venture, RailsBank. RailsBank is a global banking-as-a-service business that enables any company or brand to become a fintech. The RailsBank platform enables marketers, product managers, developers, CEOs, and founders to prototype, launch, and scale financial products super fast through using an open finance platform, operations, regulatory licensing, and rich set of simple APIs. RailsBank has raised over $120 million from leading investors, including Anthos and Middlegame Ventures. We hope you enjoy the show. Nigel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a, a delight to be with you. Maybe what we could do is start off with the space you're in, or specifically the technology that you provide. It's fascinating because it's truly a way for brands to better engage with their consumer base by using fintech. So if you could tell us a little bit more about the company. Sure. Uh, thanks for the invitation to talk as well. So the company is Rails Bank. I'm the CEO, Nigel Verdon, CEO and co-founder. Uh, what do we do for our customers? So we look through the lens of our customer to their consumer, and then we uh, try to understand what experiences that consumer is uh, looking for. For example, a consumer doesn't buy a car loan, a consumer buys a car. And so how can our customer, who also wants to engage with the consumer with a car loan as part of the car buying experience, embed that financial experience into the car buying process, experience, uh, journey, etc., and make it embedded as opposed to flipping out to a banking experience or filling out paperwork and that type of thing. So we then, what our technology, which is a question that was that our technology is the tools for customers and the customers can be uh, various brands, uh, so retailers, grocery stores uh, and fintech companies. The tools to allow them to deliver financial experiences, which are like credit experiences wallet experiences, payment experiences, loyalty experiences to their consumers and embed them in their own customer journey is what we do. And it's not just the technology. We provide a complete turnkey service. So technology, financial operations, financial licensing, scheme memberships, uh, we're principal members of Visa, MasterCard, all the regulatory pieces. So the complete vertical stack to connect the consumer all the way to the central bank and a consumer all the way to the payment scheme. We own that stack end to end. And that's what makes us different. So not just a piece of software that sits on top of the old legacy banking uh, system. We've completely got rid of the legacy and we connect directly. Excellent. So is it as simple as thinking, take a, one of the famous brands right now or, or trending brands, I should say, is Peloton. So for example, if Peloton were to say, we want our consumers, our fan base, we want them to have a Peloton credit card, would they then you know, use Rails Bank to be the de facto software that would manage kind of the whole payments function of the credit card? And does the loans then sit with their existing bank? So let's use that as an example. 
if there was a, a Peloton wanted to launch a, uh, a credit card experience for their cards, sort of drive loyalty, drive engagement, drive data, and you get a lot of demographics of where they're spending, for example, if they spend in sports calls, stores or do they spend the credit card in the bar, that will allow them to actually market, uh, sort of understand their consumer and understand what sort of exercise they could also be selling or health to them. So we provide the technology. We provide the principal members of Visa and MasterCard, so the scheme membership. We provide all the way through to the banking pieces as well. And from the credit, we can bring our credit line with us and we can allow Peloton to participate in that credit line themselves to deploy their own balance sheet, so take part of the, uh, the debt. We can participate in that, and our, our lending partners can participate in that as well. So we own, as I say, complete stack, not just the software. And then we operate the financial operations for loan servicing. So, uh, for example, making sure that the repayments are done on time for selling off a bad debt, if it's debtors, we do all the transaction monitoring, all the other pieces that you do as a regulated business. So it's uh, if you look at, uh, say, especially in the US market, a lot of the uh, competitors are just pure piece of software. We go, we're fully vertically integrated stack. Fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there's certain car dealers in the US that are making less margin on the actual sale of the car and making more of their profits on the financing. So it sounds like it's truly enabling these auto dealers or auto companies to, in a sense, capture sure. that uh, financing uh, profit. Sure. The, if you look at housing and cars, are the two big purchases of a consumer uh, generally in their lifetime. And divorce is probably the third one, if you said I mean, people go through it. So there's a big movement at the moment of car subscription, which is a, another way of saying uh, lending or leasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in, in the European market, I think uh, 80% of cars now sold all have a leasing agreement as well with them. And the leasing agreement can be actually a, a traditional loan where you own it at the end or you give it back and you then take on another lease for another car. So it looks like a, a, a subscription, essentially. And so, yes, and, and the margin in the industry, that's why GMAC and uh, Ford Finance and all these other businesses uh, do actually make a ton of money because uh, they, they help the person buy, but they make high margin, a high margin product uh, for it and they... They know there's the security of the product as long as it doesn't get crashed. But if it gets crashed, it's insured anyway. So you've got uh, quite a nice sort of system. You've got the credit insurance based into the car insurance by default. It's a, uh, a nice experience. And plus, from a consumer, it, uh, there is a sort of one of the trends we noticed that uh, tend to drive nicer cars now and newer cars because the, the financing enables them to do that rather than they keep the car for 10, 15 years and then buy a new one and finance that over the leasing approach or subscription approach puts more cars on market. Uh, plus, it allows that shift, I think, from a governmental side towards uh, trying to get towards zero carbon, therefore to pure electric or to more efficient cars on that journey to pure electric. So you start phasing out of the ecosystem inefficient cars and, and a move to, to zero carbon cars or electric cars. There will be carbon producing electricity but uh, you've got that shift for, for governments as well. In G10 countries, it's going to be very different in places like China. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to talk a bit more about um, you know, kind of your perspective on the whole payment space because you've been a you know multiple times entrepreneur in fintech. But before we go there, 
a little bit more about Rails Bank. Which sectors, I mean, we talked about the auto sector. Which sectors do you find your technology has the most relevance to? We started in, in the fintech world as being like the enabler uh, for a new wave of neobanks. And we have, I think, about 46 neobanks sitting on top of us and equivalent of, and uh, new wealth managers, new saving products, uh, and those business. And that was when we first started because it saved them all building their own, their own infrastructure. They just took our, our components and embedded it into their own, their own customer journeys, user interfaces, etc. The ones we're seeing... We then look at the world in uh, digital natives and emerging digital. And emerging digital is people have taken that leap to at least have an app. Okay, they've gone beyond the website, if you say something. And uh, so there's brands uh, like people like retailers in the supermarket world uh, getting good traction with uh, grocery stores uh, because they like to have a full stack view of, of the consumer and they can increase the engagement by having financial products instead of the day, weekly shop. They can see them every day and if they're going to competitors, for example. And you can put reward reward points and open loop reward points so you can have certain offers if they're spending at a competitor, for example. So we're seeing good traction in there. We're starting to see traction and we've got customers now in, uh, in who've got fan bases. So, so it's uh, stadiums, Sports uh, like McLaren and Formula One is a customer, and they're engaging with the fan base because very few people in the world will race uh, Formula One for uh, McLaren because they have two drivers a year. Very few people will own a McLaren because they're like second hand is $650,000 new, they're well over that. But they have millions of fans. So, how do they engage with those fans? And it comes back to esports. The drivers actually come out of the esports world and then go to the karting world and then go into the uh, Formula One world. And there's a ton of people, if they sponsor them on the esports, they buy a McLaren skin to put on their card in esports. They, it's uh, embedding finance and buying that skin experience. And if they can reward them, if they win, they put it into the McLaren wallet. And if the McLaren wallet gives certain points, you get the McLaren card. And then on race day, you can go to the paddock and see the drivers. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole way that finance is there in the background, but it's enabling an amazing fan experience of McLaren. And McLaren can make money of it. They can see what today's consumer is. They can get trends on what tomorrow's consumer looks like as well. So it's, uh, we did. if you see Money 2020, there's a, a conversation with the head of marketing for McLaren, myself and Quantum Pay, who are the official neo-banking partner of McLaren, and we support that business underneath. Fantastic. Now, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about your experience as an entrepreneur, but then also kind of knowledge of what's happening, what's been happening in the fintech space. And we talked about traditional banks versus neo-banks. You know, where do you see payments today and where do you see it Heading, meaning you've got the incumbents, the JP Morgans and Goldman Sachs of the world, who are increasingly participating in digital payments or other types of fintech. And then you've got the kind of more native fintech startups and purely digital banks. How do you kind of make sense of of the space where it sits today and uh, where do you think it's headed? Sure. Uh, Today, 
the big move since 2012, end of tail end of 2011, was very much about taking, say, the payment space and making it digital. So they took transactions and made them digital transactions. They enhanced the data on those transactions to make them more useful. And that's where PayPresto, you got Stripe, you got TransWise and everything. And you made them much easier to integrate and consume. So that, and it was really taking legacy and just making it as a digital layer on top of the legacy infrastructure, except TransferWise, because they, like ourselves, direct clearers with the Bank of England. So that's a pure end-to-end digital with no legacy in there. So where we are today is great. The neobanks have taken a banking experience and made it digital. They haven't just made the branch digital, they've made the whole experience digital rather than just automating the branch and sticking it on the phone, which a lot of the traditional banks have done. And so we're now in the the first wave of some of the basic products in finance being made digital. So it's a good movement, but we've still got a ton of legacy sitting in the back end. It still sits on top of JP Morgan. It still sits on top of uh, some of the Goldman stuff. It still sits on top of... uh, Bank of Merrill Lynch's uh, pipes and everything. So where do we go next? The next is people like ourselves as a B2B level and transferize on a B2C level. And they also do some B2B as well in the B2B business. Uh, the product, uh, the guy who ran that's now our chief product officer. Uh, of where we've all gone directly integrated into the financial system and bypassed the legacy. And what's that allowed us to do is uh, we now control the cost. I don't have JP Morgan or Barclays or anybody telling me what price it is. It's the Bank of England or the European Central Bank, which tells me what price it is to transact and clear the currency. We own the operational excellence. We own the uh, compliance risk. So we can decide what customers we do and don't want in our own risk policies. We don't have a legacy risk policy from a third-party bank telling us what we can and can't do. And what this has done... It's removed banks as gatekeepers to currency, gatekeepers to credit, gatekeepers to capital markets and everything. The same way that when Apple launched the iTunes was basically it's taken record labels and removed them from the gatekeepers to the fans and the gatekeepers to the uh, to the artists. And what's happened with the uh, the music industry, and I, in a parallel life, I've got a massive other life in the, in the music world. You can probably see the guitar behind me there. Yeah. The music industry was on its knees pre the iTunes after it, and they restructured Spotify and everything, and a fan direct to uh, artist, artist direct to fan. The record labels are still in there, even though they're not the gatekeeper anymore. They're still playing a vital role. The consumer is better served. The artist is better served with, without some of the stupid contracts they used to get under. And the music industry is massively thriving. There's much more creativity, there's much more distribution because it's all re-energized because the gatekeepers were moved. And the gatekeepers are only there historically. They weren't doing it from an evil perspective. I don't know if you said So look at the banking world. Same thing as moving the banks. And again, banks aren't being evil. That's just historically, that's how the industry is structured. But uh, if you open it up, and Goldman's one of the first people to really push for this, uh, SEB I know working on it and, and a few others, is where Goldman's philosophy is that very much came from a guy called Marty Chavez, who's the former CFO and CIO of Goldman, who's connected to one of our main investors, was a bank is regulation, and a bank is capital, and a bank is uh, essentially lending. If you put APIs around that bank and make it available to people like Apple with the Apple card, 
hey, presto, you've created a great thing. Apple can originate millions of consumers much cheaper than China, for example. Mm -hmm. So you've created an ecosystem where uh, Goldman said, right, we're opening up. We're not gatekeeping anymore. Here's here's access to. So uh, we see a, a move where the brands who have millions of consumers don't need the cap costs on the risk by venture capital, but can deliver financial services, financial experiences to the consumer embedded in the exact, in the already in their customer journey. They're also, their acquisition of a loan is around probably five to 10 bucks, as opposed to a bank, it's about 350 bucks to acquire a loan. So an asset on the balance sheet and ditto for acquiring a liability or a deposit on the balance sheet is still extremely expensive in banking, but very, very low for brands. So if you bring those two together, you change the economics of banking, and you look at most banks' return on capital, of return on equity and everything is pretty damn low, and the share price is reflecting it. Share price of banks should be a lot, lot higher, but because they have legacy, they have cost and everything else in there, and, and process, and the acquisition cost of assets and liabilities far too high because of that, you actually create a new ecosystem like we did in the music industry. So that's where I see the future is banks opening up, probably not so many banks because there's like 6,000 or something in the US with credit unions and banks and stuff, which is totally over bank market. And so you've got a, a risk there of inefficiencies too because you've got to have a reasonable size of a balance sheet and, and operate it properly. So you've got Fifth Third, you've got uh, Capital One and others and the, the other names in, in the US. And uh, it's almost like you're going to get these Spotify businesses, you're going to get businesses like ours or like AWS financial layer businesses creating a brand new financial system where the economics will work. And hopefully, like the uh, music industry being turned around, the finance industry turns around to be economically working for banks, financial inclusion as people who should be included in the system but can't because banks aren't charities and shouldn't be charities and it's too expensive as a bank. 92 million people unbanked in Europe alone, 6 million in the UK, it's over 12% of the population. So we can get a, a happier place, but like getting to a happier place sometimes is turkeys voting for Christmas or for Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a difficult thing to go through at times. So our vision is that's the way the industry is going, and that's what we're, we're one of the prime movers and facilitators of that change. Now, you mentioned something interesting, the underbanked, uh, and, and how it's a significant piece to you know, even developed economies. Which technologies out there, or startups out there, do you think are addressing or doing a good job kind of maybe trying to address that financial exclusion? Sure. Southeast Asia, where, it's, uh, where there's very much financial exclusion. And uh, if you look at, uh, say, Grab, GoCheck, and the Super Apps, they're now doing financial services because they're trusted to do a ton of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's also trust that you can be in the gig economy and you'll be working for one of them that's doing delivery or, or whatever. So they're part of the ecosystem and they've massively increased the reach and they've reduced the costs to deliver, so credit, deliver payments, deliver wages and everything to the consumer or, or say gig economy worker. So there's those type of businesses have done that purely because they have the reach. Uh, the digital change didn't happen in the banking industry in Southeast Asia. In UK, Europe, uh, North America, the North America can be very difficult because it's a, a sponsored market and regulation hasn't changed. And therefore, you, the, 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 until you got the regulation change, you never get 
rid of the legacy that sits and the legacy cost. So the US, I don't think, will ever be inclusive unless the regulator changes mm. and creates a new money type regulation like they have in UK, Europe, Southeast Asia, Canada, Australia, Brazil, and every other else that's not the US. So it's uh, part regulation will do it as well as technology to deliver that. Got it. I'm eyeing the clock here. We're coming up on time. I, I do have a lot of questions left, but I will trim this down. One is, and I should always discuss investors because that's a big part of our audience. But and you've raised uh, I think over a hundred million dollars or pounds. Tell us about kind of the value that your investors have brought to Rails Bank. You know, beyond financial capital, how have they helped you scale? Sure. Uh, first of all, the original investors, the angels who support us and seed essentially all either industry or ex-entrepreneurs themselves. And so we had people like the former head of Google Wallet for EMEA. We had the deputy CEO of HSBC. And so all colleagues within that sort of ecosystem. Because what we were pitching then was what we're doing now. And uh, the people who were within the industry, hey, we get that. We understand the value add. It's uh, a lot just didn't get it at all because it's like... Uh, saying iTunes will be amazing, but the MP3 thing has been a failure. No, the iTunes will be amazing type, type of thing. So they got us uh, network, they got us access, a lot of supportive bouncing ideas, etc. experiences, a Google Wallet experience. So they tried to launch in 18 countries on Citibank and just couldn't. And so that's our value prop is launching countries super, super quick. And then there was Series A, um, past Series A, We've very much focused on very founder-friendly investors who can help us that our network, uh, reach other markets, reach customers, are smart enough and experienced enough to very much debate through things uh, that's top of our mind at the moment. Series A is product market fit, getting customers, getting them to pay, business model, figuring out that uh, where's the buying point, where's the pricing point, all those pieces. Post-Series A, it's about figuring out how do we scale up? How do we scale product? How do we scale people? And finding access to the right people. And so, the, for example, Antos, who led our last round and was participant in the previous one, uh, have uh, access to a lot of the old Goldman people. Now they're all ex-Goldman themselves. And also Emily, who's president of the fund, uh, was like the 100th person in Google built out AdWords, was a CEO of Snapchat, CEO of Instagram. So those scaling stories, those how to motivate your team and engage with your team that they they have a sense of purpose and one direction and that's how you build big businesses because people build businesses, not a sort of process and uh, technology. Those things have been massively helping, helping our thinking and then access to People like Marty Chavez from uh, Ex-Goldman, who is a, a massive thinker about the future, what the bank looks like of the future, has been really helpful. There's access and, and guidance and help, and not trying to micromanage uh, the entrepreneurs or anything. They're, these have experienced uh, investors before where they're trying to manage you and everything and say, well, you're investing in us, we manage the business, we our numbers, will be. that's what we're here to do, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And final question, you know, given your background and kind of years of experience uh, building businesses, if you had to boil it down to kind of one 
concept or one idea, what kind of do you think is the most important thing to remember as you're building a business? Actually, two things. Never give up and have great people. So two things. Never give up great people. Excellent. Well, that's a good note to end on. Nigel, thank you so much for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you. And uh, thank you for the invitation as well. 